I was a little uh, stunned when I looked across the auditorium and saw all these young faces. And I'm like, uh, I probably didn't prepare with those in mind like our pastor is so brilliant at doing. So parents, you're going to have to help me this morning, right? Dial in, and when those youngsters ask questions, hopefully you can help me out. Last week, we took a high-level sprint through 2 Peter chapters 2 and 3, and we briefly surveyed the problem that gave rise to Peter's writing this book. Simply put, I said it was bad people who say and do bad things that try to bring harm on the church. Peter calls those false teachers or lying teachers and scoffers, ridiculers, those who mock Christianity. But he claims forthrightly, false prophets also arose among the people of Old Testament times, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destructions. And I gave you some historical examples throughout church history, and I cited some modern-day examples of lying teachers and scoffers. Furthermore, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Now, there are certain things that are true of these false teachers and scoffers, these bad people who say and do bad things. Peter says they're under active destruction. He says things will not bode well for them in the final judgment. But as believers, while we are waiting for the Lord's return, while we know that there will be external threats and scoffers, there will be lying teachers that crop up in the church, Peter has this sort of a peak section in chapter 3 that has half a dozen exhortations for us vis-a-vis these scoffers and mockers. This book is, is a classic example of a text that presents to us a problem or a situation, the problem of false teachers and scoffers. He gives us several behavioral elements, commands, that we are to adhere to. He does that in various ways, but he also suggests some rewards and punishments. So what are those admonitions? Listen carefully. In light of false prophets and teachers, in light of scoffers, then what are we to do about that? How are we to respond? Number one, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Do you remember what he said about them? They are spots and blemishes. Do you remember I said there's an antithesis between the believers and these false teachers in this book? Listen for them. Number two, Count the patience of our Lord, that is, the delay of his second coming, as salvation. It's not something to mock or scoff at, because a thousand years is a day with the Lord, and a day is a thousand years. Time is a moot point with God. It's a non-issue. Thirdly, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. It can happen. It can happen if not only we don't have the right content of belief, but as we're going to see, if we don't have the right content of character 
It's both. One doesn't give rise to the other. The biblical ideal is right doctrine, right behavior, right character. It's both. I read a quote this morning on Instagram that said something like this. You can tell about someone's worldview by the order of their steps. Not true. you got to have both a right view of truth and right character. This is what 2 Peter says if it says nothing else. It's both. Finally, and this is what, uh, this, is, this is the end command. Grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 18. Now, those are great exhortations, Peter. Awesome. But what do they look like? How are we to flesh that out? And I would uh, suggest to you this morning that if chapters 2 and 3 explain the problem or situation, chapter 1 gives us the solution to the problem. So, what are the command elements in chapter 1 of 2 Peter that help us to guard against being influenced by false teachers and scoffers? That's the question. And there are three salient commands in these verses that rise to the top by the language that Peter uses. The original language of the New Testament has several ways of admonishing us of, to control our thinking, our behavior, and it's kind of in a graded scale. For example, if I said to a child about to cross the street, stop! I could say, no honey, don't go there. Or I could say, sweetheart, please, Listen to dad. Which is the more urgent? Which is the more salient? Which has the most punch to it? Stop! No more forward momentum. I said don't, don't take any forward momentum, right? Three different ways. Well, Peter tells us, gives us some admonitions, some ways he wants to influence our behavior and our thought processes in several ways in this book. But in chapter 1, he gives us that stop kind of a command and there are three of them and the first one is this add these qualities to your faith that's number one if you're taking notes add these qualities to your faith well what faith well it's the faith that his divine power has granted to us it's the faith that comes through the knowledge of God he tells us it's the faith which God has granted us it's the faith that is the result of his precious and very great promises. It's the faith that has enabled us to become partakers of the divine nature. It is the faith delivered, uh, which has delivered us from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. That's the faith. And yet we are to add something to it. How is that possible? Our faith is supernatural from soup to nuts, from beginning to end. The just shall live by faith. Right? From faith to faith, the just shall live by faith. It's all faith. It's all God. We have nothing to contribute to our salvation whatsoever. Yet, he says, add to your faith. It's very clear. Well, three of these, and I'm going to run through this list quickly. Three of these things that we're to add to our faith have to do with attitudes and emotions. Two of these are moral and ethical qualities. 
and two of them are in domains of their own. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about these qualities not like boxcars following each other, not like a chain, but rather think of these qualities as a symphony of synthesized with our faith. Think about them working together. So they're not like this, they're more like this. And let's look at them very carefully. Peter says this, add number one, virtue. That's an attribute of Jesus himself. That means we master something very specially. It's kind of like the Old Testament notion of chokmah, wisdom. And before that became a religious term, wisdom, it was a concrete term. It was used of masons during Solomon's day. And so when Proverbs and the wisdom literature talk about wisdom, it really means skill. Skill like a master craftsman would have. Skill like the masons who built Solomon's temple. The skill to live life. That's what virtue is. Mastering the skill of godliness. Knowledge. Now we think that maybe some of these false teachers that Peter was opposing here were some type of prototypical Gnosticism, these people that thought that there was some sort of superior knowledge that you had to have, this esoteric knowledge in order to be saved, to know God. We're not sure. But Peter says you need to have knowledge. In other words, you need to have understanding. It's not enough just to have information. True wisdom is having understanding that you can then apply. Thirdly, self-control. I have a lexicon that's designed for Bible translators in other, other cultures. So it's specifically made for. Listen to some of the glosses it gives to this word for self-control. I love it. To hold oneself in. So there are ways, you have to say this in other languages, in receptor languages, right? To hold oneself in. To command oneself. To be chief of oneself. To make one's heart be obedient. To command one's own desires. To say no to one's own body. Pretty good, huh? Fourth, steadfastness. Endurance. That means the ability to put up when things are hard. To keep on going. To not quit. Godliness. That is behavior reflecting right religious beliefs and attitudes. Living as God has told us to live. Were the false teachers godly? No, they were anything but that. Brotherly love, brotherly affection, that is love for fellow believers. And can I stop here for just a moment? You really and truly love people? Do you love other Christians? Let me tell you, if you're struggling with that, let me tell you how to fix that. Go hang out with them. Go hang out with some Christians. Spend some time with them. Get to know them. Ask God to change your lover, your ability to love others. And finally, love the agape or agape. Often defined as that self-sacrificial love, that John 3.16 love. But it's just not true, folks. It's not true that agape is always that kind of love. It's, it's, it's more complex than that.
But at any rate, brotherly love is based on an interpersonal association specifically within the church. Agape love is based on deep appreciation and high regard. And Peter says, do both. Add both. What's the benefit? What's the reward of comporting with this first command to synchronize or add these things to a God-given faith? Well, he says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You're not going to be swayed by false teachers or scoffers. He goes in verse 9, But whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted that, that they're blind, they've forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. You're susceptible to mockers and, and false teachers. Now, if we're thinking about this as good, starchy, reformed people, some bells ought to be going off in our minds. So, we're the beneficiaries of this wonderful, supernatural, God-ordained, grace-filled assertion about the God-centeredness of our salvation in verses 3 and 4. But what about these words adding to our faith? What aspect of the Christian life does this touch on? Talk to me. Justification, sanctification. Thank you. Sanctification. That's what Peter's talking about. It's becoming more like Christ in our daily experience as to what we are positionally, Romans chapter 6 kind of stuff, right? So there is an active side of sanctification, and there's the passive side of sanctification. There's that which God does, but then there's this good old reform notion of mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the, of the flesh, right? That's our responsibility. So in a sense, I know we don't like cooperation a lot, but in a sense, we do. I don't care what systematic theology says. I'm more concerned about what the Bible says. And the Bible says we have to do this. I do care about systematics, but I care more about Scripture. Let me read you a couple of quotes, and we'll wrap this, this one up. Sanctification. The divine act of making the believer actually holy. That is, bringing the person's moral condition into conformity with the legal status established in justification. It's becoming more an experience of what we truly are. That's sanctification accord to, according to uh, Millard Erickson's Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology. How does that work together? Well, listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Here's more on the passive side of sanctification. This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. Thank God. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In which war? Although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome. And so the saints grow in grace, 
perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And that's exactly what Peter wants us to do, isn't it? Now, one lengthy quote, and I had to smuggle this in from my brother Phil. This is a quote from R.C. Sproul that I found on Ligonier's website, Phil. It's really good. We ought to pay attention to it. Here's the other side. Here's the other side of sanctification. The passive, God's part. The active, the First Peter 1 part, our part. Can't say it any better than R.C. For Calvin, he says, quote, Growing in godliness is hard work. Really? There is no place for sloth. We must exert ourselves to obedience with speed and diligence. The believer is anything but passive in sanctification. But later, while commenting on the same verse, Calvin also warns against the delirious notion that we make the movements of God in us efficacious. There's no merit in what, in, in what Peter's asking us to do. It's part of Christian discipline. We spent a whole semester on that. God's work could not be done in us unless we allowed to do it. In other words, that's not what it's about. Sproul goes on. On the contrary, right feelings are formed in us by God and are rendered by Him effectual. In fact, they are in our power, but only show that we ought to have and what ought to be done. All our progress and perseverance are from God. Wisdom, love, patience, these are all gifts of the God and the Spirit. So when Peter tells us to make every effort, he by no means asserts that these virtues are meritorious or efficacious. It's part of the Christian life. It's part of the defense against apostatizing. It's part of the defense of being lured by false teachers or scoffers. Godliness. That's number one. And that addresses the character issues of false prophets and scoffers. There's a thread of discourse running through this whole book. There are theological themes from the front to the back, and this is one of them. This is the antithesis to their character. Second point. Make sure of your calling and election. Oh, yummy, yummy. Note to self. Quote Calvin, quote the confession, move to point three. <laughs> Nothing wrong with quoting Calvin in the confession, but we're going to have to deal with this text. What is calling? What is election? What does Kleson Kai Eklagen calling and election mean? Are they separate? Or could it be better taken, you're calling even, the word chi there, and even also can be used in many different ways in the New Testament. Whatever the case is, they're so closely related semantically in their form and theologically, I'm not going to split hairs over it. But Peter says, make sure you're elect. Make sure you're born again. Make sure you're saved. Make sure you know Jesus. Well, how am I supposed to know that? How am I supposed to know that I have been an object of God's choosing as a member of a special group for salvation? How can I know that God made me the object of a special choice? How can I know that? I mean, if you look at these two words, calling and election, 
the one common denoting factor is this, choosing on purpose. Now, okay, so we could, we could scurry about for some quotes from the confession. We could scurry about for some commentaries. Let's ask this question. Is there any First Peter data? Are there any Petrine admonitions? Or, or, or is there any information from Peter himself to tell us what he means by election? What's in the neighborhood, folks? What's in First Peter, Second Peter? Well, I found some good stuff. Let's see what the Bible says. Let's see what Peter himself has said. And I'm going to quote to you from the contemporary English version. There's a half a dozen things Peter says about election. I like that. Comparing Scripture with Scripture, don't you? Number one, 1 Peter 1, 2. God the Father decided to choose you as his people, and his Spirit has made you holy. Amen. 1.5, you have faith in God whose power will protect you until the last day. Then he will save you just as he always planned to do. Amen again. Number three, 1 Peter 1.15, always live as God's holy people should because God is the one who chose you. Number four, 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was chosen even before the world was created. But because of you, he did not come until these last days. Well, if I look at that text in Ephesians 1, that I am chosen in Christ before the creation of the world, and Christ is chosen before the creation of the world, I'm chosen. I don't understand it. Not my job to understand totally. I can't explain it. I'm supposed to proclaim it, right? I can faith it. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, but you are God's chosen and special people. Chapter 3 and verse 9, you are God's chosen ones and he will bless you. Now, we are commanded to make every effort, spudazzo, same word as the first point, make every effort, be diligent, just like adding X, Y, Z to your faith, we are to make every effort that we are assured of our calling and election. Now, here's the $64,000 question, right? How do we comport with that? That's a command. How do we verify it? Wait for it. It's really simple. It's not complex. It's in 1 Peter Chapter 5 and verse 13. Are you listening? Greetings from the Lord's followers in Babylon. They are God's chosen ones. Are you following Jesus? As Dr. Gray Allison, one of my professors, used to say, is he your boss? Is he your Lord? I don't think people who are unelect are really worried too much about election. It's kind of like salvation. Any, any, anybody ever doubted their salvation, struggled with that? Man, I did. I had major problems when I became a Christian in my early 20s. Struggled with it. Struggled with it. And the Lord gave me 1 John, I believe it's chapter 5 and verse 12. It says this in the King James Version. He that hath the Son 
hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The question was, do you have the Son? Do you know the Son? Are you following Jesus? In the Greek text, it says the one who is having the Son right now is the one who is having life. That's literally how it's translated. And I'm like, you know, people that are truly born again with sensitive hearts, they're going to struggle with this issue, but I doubt they're too much worried about it. Same thing with election. I don't think these false teachers and scoffers are much worried about being the elect or not. So what does growing in grace look like? It looks like, number one, adding these virtues to your faith. And number two, making a strong effort to ensure our calling and election. And finally, growing in grace looks like something else. It looks like, according to Peter, knowing something else. That is, having confidence in the Scripture. This is a personal observation. If you, if, I'm, I'm going to use a cliche. You're never supposed to use cliches in your writing or speaking, but I'm going to use one for emphasis. I'm going to say the proverbial, if you don't hear anything else I hear this morning, young people, those of you who might be struggling with your faith, those of you who are struggling with life, would you be so kind as to pray and give me your undivided attention in this next point? This is important. I can't tell you how important it is. I can't overemphasize that. And in order to do that, I want you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew 17. We're good on time. The roast isn't going to burn, I promise. I've stayed off the rabbit trails. Matthew 17, I want us to read this passage together. The passage of the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's what Matthew says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you, will, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Lord, let's just camp out a while. This is good stuff. Verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the experience that Peter is recounting for us here in 2 Peter chapter 1. The King James Bible says this, We did not follow cleverly, or I'm sorry, cunningly devised myths. I love it. Peter says, no, this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration was anything but mythological. Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him. We heard him. We could have 
tasted him, if we had kissed him. This was such a vivid experience. And Peter's saying here, I have seen a foreshadowing. I've seen a foreshadowing of that second coming that the scoffers are scoffing about. I know it's going to happen in God's own timing. Kind of like uh, Job of the Old Testament said, after the skin worms have destroyed my body, I will see God face to face. Oh, my heart faints within me. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in his glory, his train fill the temple. Peter's not the first one to see a pre-incarnate manifestation and the glory of Christ. It was an incredible experience. He said, I saw with my eyes. I heard with my ears. I experienced the transfigured Messiah. But, even so, even so, more real than that, we have this, a more sure prophetic word. Peter's saying that this word of God, the words of Christ and his apostles or their designees who wrote this Bible is more certain than his experience of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Let that sink in. G.E. Moore had this famous illustration about skepticism he said hold up one hand look at that hold up two hands look at that and he would say there are at least two external objects in the world that means there's a real world there are a lot of skeptics who believe that we can't really trust our experiences that's that's been a hist- that's been throughout the course of, of western philosophical tradition God did not give us our experiences to fool us. God gave us our senses, rather, reliable senses, so that we could know him. And again, stop and think about this. More certain than what Peter saw with his eyes, what he heard with his ears, the glorified Jesus, we have a more certain prophetic word. Can you believe that? Can you live with that? Can you possibly lay hold of that? Whatever you're struggling with this morning, the answer is here. It's in the sacrament of the Word of God, the self-attesting, self-authenticating Scripture. This is Scripture's testimony of Scripture. There can be no higher authority for a Christian than what Peter says here. This is an amazing statement. Now, let me recapitulate and offer some practical applications for us this morning. Peter warns us that there were false prophets among ancient Israel, and there will be false prophets during his day, or false teachers, and he warns us that these will continue until the return of Christ. That's what he says in this epistle. Two, they're bad people. They say and do bad things. And they can do irreparable harm to the church and believers. Three, bad people who do and say bad things isn't the biblical standard. A good person that says bad things isn't the biblical standard. A bad person that says good things isn't the biblical standard. The biblical standard is godliness and right things to say. Right truth from Scripture. The more certain prophetic word. 
Finally, if chapters 2 and 3 present us with the problem, then chapter 1 surely is part of the solution. It at least points us in the direction of growing in grace. If we're adding virtues to our faith, this counteracts the bad characters and the bad actors of 2 Peter 2 and 3. If we're continuously asking ourselves, are we truly following Jesus, thereby ensuring our calling and election, this is the antithesis to the spiritual position of false teachers and scoffers. Thirdly, by having supreme confidence in the prophetic word of God, the scriptures, and the Bible, that surely provides the antidote to the content of false teachers and countervails the ridicule of scoffers. Humans wither like grass and their glory fades like wild flowers. Grass dries up, flowers fall to the ground. But what the Lord has said will stand forever. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the written word of God. And Lord, we struggle. Our sinfulness. We struggle to be godly. We struggle believing your promises that you have saved us by your grace, for your glory, through your sacrifice, Son, Jesus. And Lord, certainly we struggle to, to believe to have confidence, supreme confidence in the Bible and our sophisticated, modern, scientifically driven world and culture. But, oh God, give us grace to grow. Give us grace to be assured of our calling and election. And give us grace to believe the truth of your Scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.